same scripture from Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your steed. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. We light this candle with love. We remember the times we've longed for God to be present with us. We ask Jesus to come into our world, to break through and reign with his hope, peace, joy, and love. Let us pray. God of hope, Prince of peace, Jubilee judge and Lord of love, your goodness is beyond our wildest imaginations. You give us more than we can think to ask, coming to us with impossible possibility in the union of flesh and spirit. Teach us to love this world and all people as you love us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please join me. Holy, holy, holy Lord, who was and is and is to come, God of promise, God of hope, into our darkness come. Amen. When I was in college, I had a professor who would open every single class almost without fail and pretty much any speaking engagement he had with a single phrase, just two words, loved ones. And usually he'd, you know, stand out there, arms open, and you'd just say, loved ones. Like, okay, that's some weird, quirky professor thing, blah, 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 whatever. I'm just a stupid 18-year-old kid, but what do I know? Um, I should also note that that phrase is weird in of itself, but uh, I went to a Christian university, so it's not weird in that context. Uh, and to top it off, he's a New Testament professor, which makes it even more weird, or less weird, sorry. Um, so yeah, it, anyway... All of that to say, I just thought it was some weird, quirky thing that the professor was doing to settle us kids down so he could start teaching about the New Testament and all that fun jazz. I've been thinking about it a lot here lately, because, you know, well, I'm talking about love in this time of love. You associate all that. Uh, and I've come to really think about it in a much different way and realize it has a much deeper and more meaningful understanding than what I've could even comprehend when I was a teenager. So yeah, we're in, we're in the time of Advent right now, and we typically think of this time as just a love time. It's one of the two years where we tend to do lots more spiritual things where it's love-focused. Christmas, love, baby Jesus. Easter, love, cross. That one gets weird. Um, but we really focus on love in these two times. And regardless of where we're at and who we are, we always come out with some sort of assumptions. Like, we assume what Christmas should look like every single year, like the motif. We've got a Christmas tree up over here, and if you're, not, if you're at home and you haven't been in the building, we have a Christmas tree up with lights, and it's pretty, and it's cool. Um, 
But we assume that's what it looks like, or we assume we're supposed to have lights and candles, or it's supposed to look a certain way, and it's supposed to feel a certain way. Like we always come with that, with that assumptions. We get hung up on what it's supposed to look like and what it's supposed to be, and then even what it means to have Christmas and what Christmas means to us individually. It can, our assumptions can color all that we have. It colors what we bring to the table, what we think about here. Our assumptions of love even color how we relate to what happens comes soon, um, and then moving forward, what happens at the cross. Now granted, not, not all assumptions are horrible. Uh, assumptions can be good. They, they cuts both ways. You can know as far as love is concerned. Like, you assume that you are loved, and you know that, or you assume that the love that you have for others is known by them. But are those the ones that typically stick in your head? Like, if I just say love and let it linger, like, you finish the phrase with some way, something in your head, um, either whether it be a song or a phrase, uh, or maybe it's a conversation you've had in the past. Typically, the ones that stick in our head are assumptions are the ones that are the most damaging to us, and they tend to resound and rebound around in our heads constantly. Those are the assumptions that hurt. Those are the assumptions, however, that we bring with us when we think about what happens here. And by here, I mean what happens at Christmas, what happens at Advent, what happens at the cross. So Scott Erickson, this is not my copy of the book, is it? Yes, it is. It's got the little paperwork and everything. Uh, in his chapter called, funnily enough, Assumptions, um, he writes this. Christmas comes with many assumptions, some helpful, some not so much. Spirituality also comes with many assumptions. And the ones that fail us are the ones we make about what it's supposed to look like, who is worthy for it to happen to, and what kind of outcome it's supposed to have for us. And then he lists uh, just a couple of different assumptions here. And some of these are really hard, and I know that I have, I've thought these at some point, but they're just, you should, you should be more than you are now to be pleasing to God. Your weaknesses are in the way of God's plan for your life. Your lack of religious fervor is a disqualifier for divine participation. You're probably not doing it right. Other spiritual people have something you don't have. Those those hurt. And I know I've had some of those in my head. Like I mentioned, I went to a Christian college for eight years. Uh, I was around a lot of academic theologians for quite a while. You can get into a mental space where, like, well, I'm not religious like uh, they are. I'm not good enough. I can't, I can't relate to the divine like they can. Those assumptions that we have, those questions and those thoughts and just the lingering ideas, they turn into belief. And those assumptions then flavor our belief of what does it mean for Christ to be present? What does it mean for Christ to be born of a man through a virgin? And what does it mean and what do we believe about the cross? Uh, Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, goes through a whole list of things and he I'm paraphrasing here a bit, but he's writes, millions have been taught that if they don't believe, if they don't accept it the right way, God would have no choice but to punish them forever in a conscious torment of hell. Those assumptions about what we believe flavor how we relate to the divine. 
And it really is those traumatizing ones that typically stick with us. Like we don't, like if we can't be good enough, if we can't relate in the right way, then maybe God doesn't love us. Maybe, maybe we're not just good enough and we're just not doing it right. Um, really, really hard. But, you know, maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't have those things in your head that's really constantly bouncing around saying, I'm not good enough. You're on the flip side saying, I know exactly what I need to do. I know uh, how this all works. Or maybe you're just not thinking, you know what? I don't even want to think about it. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what I need to do to be good, to get in a better relationship with you. Just tell me and I'll do it and then I'll be good and I can relate and it'll all be copacetic and we're fantastic. Yeah. So we assume that we can simply do the right thing and it will make us better and it will make us more loved and more lovable. Um, It reminds me of the Israelites actually. Um, this time of year, there's a constant soundtrack running through my head of Behold the Lamb of God by Andrew Peterson. I won't go into the whole thing because I will literally talk about nothing but that for a while. Um, but in his song, So Long Moses, he, he sings about this. And like how the, the Israelites, after going through a huge debacle of the kingdoms are split, then af- over time, they have a fervor for God, then they fall away from God, and then they forget God. And then a prophet comes, they have a fervor for God, they fall away from God, they forget God. Prophet comes and just keeps repeating over and over and over again. And it gets to a point where they've had David as a king and they love David. And they keep asking, especially Isaiah, like, will we have another king like that? Will he be full of power and grace with a sword in his fist? Isaiah responds, uh, but not in the way they're hoping. Again, they just want to be, they just want to have a king. They just want that. They know exactly what they want. All right. Um, Or, you know, maybe it's not that. Maybe the Old Testament doesn't ring your bell. Maybe that's just not where you like to sit. How about the prodigal of the two sons? Or, as you probably know, the the parable of the prodigal son. And I said that. I said those words wrong, but... (laughs) Uh, the parable of the prodigal son, I like to think of it as a parable of the two sons, because really the story is about two sons, not just the one of them. But we all know the one son. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard at least a dozen sermons on the prodigal son and how not to be that guy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the younger son, through all that he does, he wants his inheritance now, and he gets it, and then he just goes off and does whatever the hell he wants for a while. Um, he just he does all the bad things, and he assumes that his badness and all of his actions mean he cannot be loved anymore. Like He is so unlovable in his state that he's just going to go back to his father and say, you know what, I'm going to be a farmhand. You don't even have to speak to me, I just because I know you can't love me. He is convinced that his destructive deeds had put him in such a bad state that he doesn't even deserve to be called a son anymore. And that's a really dark place to be. Or maybe you're not there, or you don't relate to that. Maybe it's the other side. You're the older son. You're like, I'm doing all the right things. I am doing exactly what I need to do. Therefore, my father will love me. My person will love me. And just like the other son, he assumed he deserves the father's love and inheritance because of the goodness that he has done. He has done everything right. 
and he did it to the T. So therefore, I should be loved. His goodness is to his credit. He thanks. Now, that's a lot of assumptions, a lot of dark places, and a lot of heaviness. Uh, so I mentioned uh, in the Imago Voices, whatever we're calling it now, uh, if you've read that, that a couple of weeks ago I ran across an article about, what is it called? I have it noted here. Becoming aware of your assumptions in intimate relationships. And I, being a single man, went, I should read this. So I did. Uh, and shock and awe, what it really came down to is don't assume you know what's in your partner's head. Pretty simple. Communicate. Talk more. Do all those things that you should do. Like, don't assume, just communicate more. Fantastic, great. That's not rocket science, but it, it might be. Who knows? How do we, how do we relate to that? Because you can, it's easy enough to say, okay, you and your partner, you and your children, you and your significant other can relate in that way. You can have a sit-down conversation. You can do all those wonderful things. Like, how, how can you have that conversation with a being you can't physically interact with, you can't just have a one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to sit and have a chat, coffee chat with you. Like, how do you even know what's going on in their head? Like, that's, that's not an easy thing to think about or easy thing to do. Because, I mean, our assumptions about how we relate to God and how God then relates to us, they hinder our spiritual journey in different ways and many horrible ways. Or maybe good ways. When we get to that point where we're like, I don't know how I can not assume or how I can relate better, the, the best place I can think of, the only thing I can think of to do is just go to Scripture and read from there. So, let's hear these words from 1 John 4 out of the voice translation today. My loved ones, let us devote ourselves to loving one another. Love comes straight from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and truly knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Because of this, the love of God is a reality among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we would, could find true life through him. This is the embodiment of true love. Not that we have loved God first, but that he has loved us and sent his unique son on a special mission to become an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, my loved ones, if God loved us so sacrificially, surely we should love one another. No one has ever seen God with human eyes, but if we love one another, God truly lives in us. Consequently, God's love has accomplished its mission among us. How can we be sure that he truly lives in us and that we truly live in him? By one fact, he has given us his spirit. We have watched what God has done and we stand ready to provide eyewitness testimonies to the reality that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone unites with our confession that Jesus is God's own Son, then God truly lives in that person, and that person lives in God. We have experienced and we have entrusted our lives to the love of God in us. God is love. 
Anyone who loves faithfully, lives faithfully in love, also lives faithfully in God. And God lives in him. This love is fulfilled with us so that on the day of judgment, we have confidence based on our identification with Jesus in this world. Love will never invoke fear. Perfect love expels fear, particularly the fear of punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been completed through love. We love because he has first loved us. This is the word of the Lord. It's not often that I like to use the phrase, the Bible clearly states, uh, because that typically connotates a whole host of really (laughs) bad theological assumptions that are just about to be made. In this case, however, I like that. I don't know that I could say it any better than that final lie of, we love because he first loved us. So how do we relate to a God that we can't know his assumptions? Well, we just have to remember that he loved us first, and we have to work through that assumption. Um, it's, it's important to note here that uh, the author of 1 John is not John, who wrote the gospel. It's another John, so other John. Other John wrote this to a community who was having issues reconciling the personhood of Christ with the spiritualness of God. Uh, in the Greek world, there was a common notion and common belief that the body and the spirit were physically were separate and that the body didn't matter the spirit was all that did so if you did good things with the spirit it didn't really matter what happened to the body it's called gnosticism Um, it's still kind of prevalent today in certain areas but that's what he was writing about and he was writing about just hey um you guys gotta love each other if you love each other this is all the things so he's trying to show through the word of love, and this love here in the Greek is the word agape, which is brotherly love. Love each other, and then you're loving God. That's what the Spirit is. All that to say, First uh, John, it's a good book. Highly recommend it. Scott Erickson, in about, the, I think, halfway through this book, after that section I read, says, how do you challenge your assumptions? What is the antidote to your assumptions? It's surprise. The antidote to our assumption is surprise. Surprise that there is no requirement for God's love. You don't have to do anything to earn God's love. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do all the right things. You don't have to believe the right beliefs. You just have it. God's love is already there. And it's also a surprise that Christ chose to become fully human because of the fullness of love. And that's all throughout the Gospels and the Epistles and the extra books in the New Testament. That Christ chose to become fully human speaks multitudes to the love that he has, or that God has, for us, creation. We see these surprises and challenges to assumption again throughout the entire Bible, but let's go back to the Israelites. They wanted a king on a throne full of power and grace. How did Isaiah respond? And this is a paraphrase because I can only ever think of that song in my head when I think about this. So I know that these aren't in the actual scripture in Isaiah, but I think this is better fits. 
Isaiah said, he'll bear no beauty or glory, reject, despise, a man of such sorrow, we'll cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness, carry our tears, for his people he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel, by his wounds we will be healed. From you, O Bethlehem, small among Judah, a ruler will come, ancient and strong. So for the Israelites, it wasn't a matter of receiving exactly what they wanted in the way they wanted it. It's no, no, no. Christ will, the Messiah will come, just not how you're expecting it. This version of love is not what you want and is not what you expect. And then to take it back to the prodigal sons, the younger son, as we all have heard the story, is welcome back with open arms. No questions asked. Like, of course, you're my son. I will take you back is essentially the paraphrase of what the father says to him. It's the older son, however, who was shaken to his very core of who he is and how he relates at the just unquestioning love that his father gives his, the younger son. Because he can't comprehend that his father would love his younger brother just because. Like, he's been doing all the right things. But really, the important takeaway, as Rob Bell says, um, neither son understands that the father's love was never about what they had done. The father's love cannot be earned, and it cannot be taken away. It just is. Now, I've talked for, I don't know how long now, um, about just our assumptions in love and that the love of God, the love of Christ, especially now, doesn't require us to do anything or to earn anything or believe specific beliefs about it. It just is, and it just is there, so you should feel the love of God. And this is where normal servants will say, if you feel the love of God now, blah, come on down, and we'll uh, get you baptized and all that fun stuff. I will confess, I don't always feel that. It is hard sometimes to always constantly be like, I believe all this stuff. I know that I am love. I feel it. Because um, it's easy to talk about. I've been talking, I've been talking about it for a while. I've been singing about it for a, much longer than that. The number of songs that are out there that just say the love of God or love that will not let me go, there's a lot of them. And I don't always relate to them. Sometimes I choose songs because I know that um, there are people here. Some of you might need to hear that song. It's not hidden for me that week. It's just, it's a true, it's a truity. But, yeah. I also don't believe it's really horrible to have those thoughts that Erickson mentioned in his book in your head. I don't think it's bad to have them. What I think is damaging and hurtful is to only ever have those in your head and only ever consistently listen to those voices. So if you're consistently looking, hearing the voice of you're not good enough and there's never a challenge and there's never a surprise to that, then of course you're going to be in a very dark place and your assumptions about what love is and how you can relate to it are 100% colored. So the challenge to that assumption is to surprise yourself with the fact that, hey, you are good enough, even when you don't feel it. I know it's hard to wrap your head around it. I can't wrap my head around all of it either. I, I just know that it's there. And even when I don't feel it, it's there. And even when I do, it's there. 
because it's, it's the, <laughs> the important thing to remember. Nothing can separate you from love. Nothing. Your assumptions believe that there must be something that can, but nothing can. Nothing can separate you from that, regardless of the voices and the thoughts in your head. So, loved ones, may you thank God with joyful surprise at how much you have assumed incorrectly.